Heavenly Father, that is the anthem of our hearts this morning, is that we need you. We need you every hour. We need you every minute. We need you every moment. Father, I thank you that as believers, as we are in Christ, God, you have granted us the presence of your Holy Spirit, Christ in us, that is our helper, that is there to lead, to guide, to direct, to be for ourselves everything in our own strength that we are not. And Father, that in this time, God, that you would allow the scriptures to come alive to our hearts and to our minds. And that through your strength, God, we would honor you in living out this word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. And we pray now, God, that you would speak to us through your word. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, church, if you have your Bibles, if you will join me in the book of Colossians. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, walking through uh, chapter 4, verse 1 this morning as we are continuing to walk through this incredible letter. That this was a letter that the Apostle Paul, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to a young church in a city called Colossae. He wrote this letter from a Roman prison. And he had heard about their faith in Christ. He had heard how they had a great deep love for one another. The Bible says that they were bearing fruit, that they were increasing, and that this, fi this, this church literally was on fire for the Lord. And so wherever there is a great work of God, you can know that there will certainly be uh, an attack by the enemy to try to steal and to kill and to destroy. And that's exactly what was happening. You had these false teachers that were leaning in, trying to pressure this young church. Uh, earlier in the letter, uh, Paul warned that these false teachers were actually trying to take their minds captive. And that there was these pressures, but yet Paul is writing to, uh, to address the challenges of the pressures, but also to really help this young church to understand that what Christ has accomplished for them through the finished work on the cross. If you were looking at this letter to the Colossians and you had to kind of look for what is the theme of this letter, you find it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. And, and the, the scripture says this, it says, So you are filled in Him. Some translations say you are complete in Him. And when we say in Him, we're talking about a relationship with Jesus. And so that through a relationship with Jesus, you have absolutely every single resource that you need to become all that God has designed you to be. Think about that. That in Christ, we are complete. In Christ, we are filled. It's a nautical term. It means you're fully rigged for the journey ahead. And so Christ, through the finished work on the cross, has equipped us with everything that we need for who he's calling us to be and who he's calling us to become. This letter is packed with incredible truth. He talks about in chapter 1, verse 13 in Colossians, how we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, you are no longer in Christ under the rule and reign of sin and self, but you are now under the rule and reign of King Jesus. That the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 13, we are 
dead. We were dead in our trespasses, but God has made us alive together with him. Chapter 2, verse 13, we've been forgiven all of our trespasses. So we've been forgiven. The Bible says that our sin debt has been canceled because of what Christ has done on the cross for our sin. The Bible says that in chapter 2, verse 15, he has disarmed the enemy, which means the, the enemy has no power over us, no rule, no reign over our lives. But in chapter 3, verse 1 says we have been raised with Christ and that we have been hidden in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. I love what Paul says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, talks about this beautiful transformation that takes place when someone places their faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says this, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so through this letter, Paul is walking through practically how this truth applies to our lives. We are new creations in Christ. And the old has passed away. Behold, the all has become new. And so practically chapter 3 is walking us through hey for the believer for the one who has placed their faith and trust in Christ put to death the sensual sins in your life he speaks specifically about sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire he talks about putting away the the old which would be anger and wrath and malice and slander and lies that's the old self he actually uses clothing terms and what he's saying is to the believer, hey, those don't fit you anymore. You're in Christ. These are the old ways. This is the old sin. This is past. It doesn't fit you anymore. That God has a will and he has a design for your life. And that you would live a life that honors and glorifies him in every area of your lives. But the reality is, is that we are a new creation and yet we are living in these old fleshly bodies and we are surrounded by the domain of darkness. We really are. Paul understood this battle for the believer to put off the old and to put to death what does not honor God. He says in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. <laughs> Can you relate with that? Can you relate with that? He says in verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So he's clarifying, in my flesh, in my sinfulness. For I have the desire to do what's right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. In chapter 7, verse 20, he says, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells in me. And so Paul is walking us through what it looks like to be this new creation in the grace of God and that he has given us the strength to put away the old, the old fleshly, sinful desires of the flesh and walk in newness of life. And so if there was a main theme for the text that we're going to walk through this morning, it's, it's simply this, design over desire. Design over desire. And here's why I mean that Christ is the designer. He's the designer. He's all things were created through him, the Bible says. And so the designer has a design for your life and for my life. And that as we are walking along on this journey in a way that honors him and to glorify him as a believer, 
we also, that means that these sinful desires, temptations, struggles are going to try to creep in. And it's in those moments that in His grace and in His strength, we're reminded that it's God's design over our desire. He has a design for every area of our lives. And when we live in a way that brings honor to Him in His design, there is an order to our lives. That He has a will for our lives. He has a plan for our lives. That everything from our friendships to our feelings to our finances God has a design and when we live within his design we experience blessing and peace and order in our lives I'm just wondering how many people listening in right now are longing for peace and longing for order and longing for the blessing that he is going to walk us through the design for our lives. And specifically in this text, that not only does he have a design for the cosmos, but he has a design for our households. And specifically in this text, he's going to walk us through the design for our homes. His design for our homes. I'm reminded that every single person has a story. Every single person has a unique story. And if we're not careful, what, what can happen is we can kind of get caught up in, in a thing called a comparison trap. Because what we do is we see what we think are picture-perfect people and picture-perfect families. And what we do if we're not careful is we compare what we know about ourselves to what we don't know about other people people and that's a dangerous trap because nobody ever wins because ever either you're, you're looking and you're like wow well at least I'm better off than them or you feel like a complete loser nobody wins the comparison trap but behind every home behind every picture perfect family there are real people who have real struggles and they're real people who have real struggles just like you and I are real and just like you and I have real struggles there are lots of trends in our home today. Um, some of these you might already know, but the, the, the statistic that for every two marriages, one will end in divorce, that, that the parent is the single greatest influence in a child's life. However, if you were to let your guard down or not take that responsibility that there is a culture and there's media that would love nothing more than to train your child up in the way they should go. That if statistics are, too, are true, uh, it is said that teenagers spend somewhere around seven hours a day in front of a screen of some sort, while another stat says that fathers in the household spend about 35 seconds of meaningful conversation with their child each day. That... that over the course of a week, a family will spend five hours of what would be considered quality face-to-face -face time with their children. And so there is no doubt abuse, there is neglect, there is dysfunction, there is struggle. It has been said that as goes the home, so goes the society and the nation, and that the strength of a nation is derived from the integrity of its homes. And here is the encouragement and instruction through our text this morning. And that is this, is that God cares about your home. And He cares about my home. He cares about our homes. He has a design for our 
homes. And now the text that we're going to walk through this morning, there's going to be a little temptation that comes as we walk through this because here's what can happen. Is as we're walking through this text, there's going to be that moment where a husband is thinking to himself, man, I hope my wife is listening to this right now. And then there's going to be this time where the wife, we're going to be walking through this text and the wife is going to say, I hope my husband's listening right now. And then there's going to be a part of the text where there'll be a, a child in the home under the leadership of their parent and they're going to be like I hope my parent is listening right now and then there's going to be this point where the parent is thinking I hope my child is listening right now so let me kind of sum all of this up by saying this is that we all need to listen to this right now <laughs> we all need it we all need it and whether you're single, whether you're married, regardless of your story, it's important to understand that this is divine instruction about the home. And so we're going to walk through this because God has a design. His design is good. His design is right. And His design brings blessing. His design brings order. And His design brings peace. And so the absence of living under God's design means that there will be a lack of peace and a lack of order, which spells chaos. God is not a God or an author of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so God is going to lay out His order and His design for the home, and it's going to bring peace to our homes. So He's going to talk to a couple groups of people. The first He's going to talk to is He's going to have a word for husbands and wives. So this is a word to husbands and to wives verse 18 says wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the lord now somewhere along the way somewhere along the way the word submit was hijacked and and was made to be some really bad term that somehow symbolizes weakness or lack i, I think of you know, I think of even like fighting or MMA and, and the whole goal in the octagon is that you're trying to get them to submit and that somehow that you are the stronger one causing them to submit. But the word submit is not a sign of weakness. It's a, it means to place oneself under authority and that it's not compulsory. It's a willingness that it in no way, in no way does it indicate inferiority that in no way does it indicate that somehow a man is better than a woman in no way does it indicate intelligence and just for the record if you know my lovely bride then you know this is true she is way more smarter than me she's way more smarter so it does not about intelligence it's not about morality it's not about spirituality it's not about worth it's not about value it's not about integrity it's bringing yourself under authority Ephesians 5.21, I love this. Paul, uh, we're going to be referencing Ephesians 5 and 6 throughout this text. But even Paul indicates, listen, we should have a mutual submission. And we should have a mutual submission as we're submitting to the Lord. Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so this means that the man has a responsibility of headship and leadership in the home. I'll never forget when I was being married to my lovely bride, Pastor Jay, who was doing our, our, uh, our wedding ceremony. And part of that ceremony, he says this. He says, listen, marriage is not a dictatorship. It's a partnership. 
It's a partnership, but the husband leads the partnership. Husbands are to lead. This is God's design. And, and the Bible says that wives are, submit, are to submit to your husbands as is fitting for the Lord. This is his design. This brings order. This brings peace. That even Christ humbled himself under the Father's will. Think about that. In the place of crushing, the Garden of Gethsemane, on the, the night of the betrayal of Christ, Luke twenty two forty two, 42, the words of Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see the co-equal divine nature of the Trinity, and you see Christ the Son bringing himself under authority to the will of the Father. And so this, is, this submission is not a bad thing. It's not a, it's not a weak thing. It is a right thing. But notice this, this submission, it comes, here it is, in the context of a loving relationship. This is the context. He's writing to Christian households, and it's in the context of a loving relationship. Listen to verse 19. It says, Husbands, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with him. There are two commands in this one verse. The first is that a husband must love their wife. The word there is agape. A husband must agape his wife. The, the tense there is it's a present tense and it's an imperative, which means this is a command. That this is not an optional thing. It's a command and it's a continuous command. That we are to always be agape loving our spouses. This is way more than an emotion. It's way more than a feeling. It is a choice. It is a self-sacrificing kind of love. It is a for better or for worse kind of love. It is a covenant love. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. Paul says this, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I want you to listen to that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ gave his all for the church. We are to give our all to our spouses. I think uh, uh, the, the multiple times that I've had the privilege of of walking on, alongside a couple that's going to get married. And, and somewhere along the way, uh, I'll just kind of pull the, the groom aside and I'll say this. I like, you know, we, we will have talked about a lot of things, but I'll say here's the most important marriage advice that I could ever give you. And it's straight from the word. And it's this, is that you would love your wife as Christ loved the church. And that I would go as far as to say, is that if you are thinking about getting married and that is the plan that you're going to get married, I would say this, that if you have not reached the place where you could say, I would lay down my life for her, then I would say you're not ready to get married. This is the picture. I remember recently when I, uh, or recently after I got married, uh, I wrote on a little index card, I wrote out the verse, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I wrote it on an index card, and I placed it on my dashboard, on my car, and that when I would come home, I would read that scripture, and what it would be, it would be this reminder. It would be this reminder that I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church. God's design is that a wife's submission would operate within the context of sacrificial 
love. And this is way more than gifts, and it's way more than words, and those are important, but it's acts of sacrifice. And so, not only love your wives, but also, look at this, do not be harsh with them. We, we know what that means. We don't need to look into a Greek dictionary to see what that means. We know what harsh means. We know what harsh means. It means don't demean. Don't be unloving. That it could be the way you say something might even be more important than what you're saying. Or the attitude in which you're saying something or speaking to someone is just as important, if not more important, than what it is that you're saying. It's saying, husbands, lay down your lives. What does that look like? It's being intentional. It's valuing her as your equal. That means that you make decisions with her. That means that her opinion matters. That means that her perspective, her wisdom matters. And this is just kind of bonus points. Extra, I didn't plan on saying this, but, but like the more that you could reduce the number of negative surprises in their life is actually a way that you can be a blessing. Value her as your equal. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Cherish her. Your words matter. I love you. You're beautiful. I don't know what I'd do without you. Your hugs, your, your, your physical touch, all of those things are super important to the relationship. This is how you show her you cherish her. You make submission a joy. You make it a joy that you intentionally look for ways that you can go out of your way to serve and to contribute to the home. That when you come home, you are clocking in for overtime. That when you pull in the driveway, what is overtime? Overtime is when the game matters. It's when the game is on the line. It's when you need to dig deep. And so even when you're tired, even when you're fatigued, it's that when you enter in your home that you are literally serving out of a sacrificial love for your wife. And if you're not careful, what, if you're not careful, the enemy will begin to whisper and begin to tempt and begin to make you look your eyes at the greener grass. But I don't know who said it, but whoever said it, I believe it. The grass isn't greener on the other side. It's green where you water it. And so that you would invest in your marriage, invest in that relationship. Wives most please their husbands with loving respect, while the man most pleases his bride with sacrificial leadership. This is God's design. God's design brings order. God's design brings peace. And so he talks to husbands and wives, and then he transitions to parents and children. A word to parents and children. Now, here's the deal. If we don't get the first one right, we're not going to get this one right. We got to invest in our marriages. I believe the greatest gift that I could give my four kids is that they see a living, breathing example of somebody that loves Jesus. That they see a loving, breathing example of what a marriage relationship would look like and how they love their spouse. Third gift is that we would invest time into their lives. I did some math, and if you think that, you know, at 18, perhaps, is the age where they're launched into adulthood, I did some math. You got 6,570 days 
until your child turns 18 years old. You got 157,680 hours. And that we would not squander that time, but rather we would invest that time in training up our kids in the way they should go. Verse 20 says this, Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 says, Children, honor or obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's right. It's right. This is how you honor the Lord. So, so, so children, I say children, anyone living under the home, under the leadership of, uh, of their parent, this is for us. This is how you can please the Lord, is that you obey with every act of obedience. It's developing your character. That even if you don't feel like it, you're honoring them and you're honoring the Lord when you do it. It says obey your parents in everything. And so there's really like no limit. The only limit would be if your parent commands you to do something that's contrary to God's word. But I would also say this to, 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 your, to the children in the house, is that your parents have been entrusted with an incredible responsibility. I mean, I think about it sometimes and I see my kids running around the house and I, I think to myself, I'm like, I'm responsible for these little people. <laughs> like, like I, I have a, I've been entrusted with the stewardship to invest. And so you have parents who love you and parents who desire to raise you up and train you up in the way that they should go and that you honor them when you obey them. The Bible says this pleases the Lord. If you are a believer, you are a child in the house, if you want to know a very practical way to honor the Lord, it's to obey your parents. This pleases Him. And so as a believer, this is the Holy Spirit working in your life to overcome those selfish desires or tendencies or don't want tos, and yet to rise above in His strength and in His help, put away the old, to put on the new, and to honor them in obedience. But in verse 21, he goes on to say, Fathers, that word could also be translated parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Don't provoke your children. A literal way to say this would be don't be continually irritating your kids. So this is the time right now that if there are any children in the house or kids that you're elbowing your parent right now. Because it does. It says don't be continually irritating. Don't provoke. Don't stir up. Don't exasperate your kids. That as parents, we need to train them up. We need to discipline them. We need to love them. We need to care for them. But we don't need to provoke them. This happens in all kinds of ways. It happens when we are overprotective. Now, we have a responsibility to provide that protection. But if, but if we're trying to raise children to make decisions and to launch then along the way at age-appropriate levels, we need to show times of trusting so that they can have opportunities to learn and to grow. But this can, this can be a, a negative impact, showing favoritism. I know that's, that's an obvious one to say, but it's true. That Would your children in any way sense favoritism in the home? Devaluing, this comes in multiple ways. Being unrealistic unrealistic expectations will will strain your child failing to show affection being overly critical 
neglecting them, yelling all the time, calling them names. Listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says, fathers or parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Think about this. That if we, if we provoke our kids, that we're actually robbing them of courage. That we are robbing them of courage. There's an old nursery rhyme. I think it's a nursery rhyme, but it says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words always hurt me. I know that's not how it goes, but that's the truth. Because it's even possible that as you're listening, you can even recall that time where your mother, your father, your grandparent, whoever it was, they said something to you. And it wounded you deeply. Words matter. Words matter. So this is God's design. It's, remember, it's design over desire. Our sinful flesh want to raise up that, that kind of anger, frustration. I'm not going to obey. I don't want to do. Like, all that's going to raise up. But listen, God's design, it's His design over the flesh, over our desire. And that we put to death, put away. When we live within God's design, we will experience God's blessing. We will. We experience God's blessing. And so in this text, there is a third group. There's a third group that Paul addresses, and it is a word to masters and to servants. Slavery was a reality in Paul's day. The historians say that up to 50% of the population of Colossae would have been living as a servant. Other historians say that as many as 80% or more were servants in the city of Rome at that time. Paul is in no way affirming this behavior. He is speaking to real people in the midst of a sinful culture. He's speaking to real people with real struggles in a sinful culture. Slavery, bondage, and oppression is always a result of sin. It's always a result of the fall of man. Paul even encouraged them to find their freedom first Corinthians 7 21 says if you can gain your freedom avail yourself to the opportunity so Paul says in verse 22 of chapter 3 he says bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord whatever you do work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, this, this passage has been handled different ways. Different leaders, pastors, uh, oftentimes will make the application of an employer and an employee relationship. And certainly there are principles here that would apply with being not by way of eye service. This means you're, you're only working when somebody's watching. And so like, like there are obviously some principles that apply here. But, but today is not the first century. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, whatever you do, serve the Lord. God is saying to them, serve me. Listen, God is going to take care of you. This is what Paul's saying. Paul is saying God is going to take care of you. Paul is saying press on. Heaven is going to be worth it. Whatever you do, do it as if you're doing for me. 
I'm preparing a place, Christ says to his people. Heaven is going to be worth it. Press on, serve me. I will take care of you. This is a challenge for all of us as believers to live with a heavenly perspective. A heavenly perspective. Just earlier in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, so you are in Christ, a new creation, he says, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. He also says, set your minds on things that are above. On the evening of the betrayal of Jesus, the disciples are processing that he is no longer going to be with them. And in John chapter 14, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, that in my house are many rooms. What is he talking about? He's talking about heaven. And so he's actually helping his disciples get through the struggle and the trouble and the turmoil and the unrest by focusing on heaven. God, help us to live and think through heavenly perspective. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He talks about us as believers, and depending on the translation you have, will depend on the word that's there. But it's going to be one of these four most likely. He's going to refer to believers as aliens. He's going to refer to believers as exiles. He's going to refer to believers as strangers. He's going to refer to believers as pilgrims. And so, so, so each one of these terms all have something very important in common, and that is for every single one of them, this is not our home. This is not our home. And so we live with a heavenly perspective. As we look around, we are approaching a very important day in the life of our country. The election is taking place on Tuesday. And as we look around, we see division. We see unrest. And if you were to rewind the clock to 2,000 years ago into the Passion Week of Christ, and Christ was making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what you would find is you would find a group of people who wanted to make Jesus king and to set up his kingdom. And you would also find a people that wanted the complete opposite of that that I would go as far as to say is that the political unrest 2,000 years ago was much more intense than anything we could see or imagine. I believe that as we approach Tuesday, I believe we need to be in prayer. I believe that we should fast. I believe that we should see voting as a grace from God that He's entrusted us to steward. And so we have this opportunity, and my conviction as a believer is that we would vote in alignment with biblical truth and values. But listen, regardless of what happens, regardless of what happens on the election as believers who have a relationship with Jesus, we can have peace regardless we're aliens, we're strangers, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims. And we will, by grace, honor God with every opportunity He stewards to our care. But listen, regardless of the outcome, our hope is not in a nation or a leader, but it is in a better leader, a better king, a truer king. And it's King Jesus, the only one who can bring peace to our hearts in a way the world never can. And so... So we are called to live life with this heavenly perspective. Heavenly 
perspective. And he wraps up in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master. People of authority treat all people justly, fairly, with dignity. We are to treat all people with dignity. All people created in the image of God. Dignity. I love what Paul says to the Galatian church in chapter 3, verse 28. says, There is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. And so, God's design... <laughs> God's design over fleshly desire. The desire will creep up. The temptation will creep up. The struggle will creep up. But by His grace, we yield and live under His design. And it's under His design we experience blessing. And we experience order. And we experience peace. I love that in this letter of practical teaching to this young church that is growing and thriving, God felt it was important enough through Paul to remind them that there is to be order in the home. There's to be a design to the home. And so I want us to pray. And as we pray, I, I, want, I, I want us to just reflect. I want us to reflect on not just what we wish or hope our wife would hear or our kids would hear or our parents would hear, but we would reflect on what God wants us to hear. Because God, God, I, I love, it's been said that, that the Bible is the only book that when you open it up, the author shows up. And so that God is, is active and His Word is alive and it's sharp and that God wants to use the Word to bring not just conviction, but also encouragement and also the truth to be able to live a life that brings glory to Him in His design and in His way. Maybe you are here and you are a husband or wife that's listening and you hear these words and the flesh wants to creep up and, and kind of bring all these reasons why, but yet, listen, let's just focus on the words of the Lord that we bring our lives under His design as husbands, as wives, that children, as we listen in, you find yourself under the leadership of a parent, a caring adult who loves you. And though there are those times where it mounts up and they don't understand and they're this, this, this. But listen, God's design is to obey in everything. This pleases God. As a believer, I believe every, the genuine desire of every believer is to truly want to honor the Lord in all they do. So as we walk through, may we bring our lives under the design of the designer. And then it could be that you're here and you understand that you are a creation of God, that you have been designed by God, but did you know that you were designed for a relationship with God? That God knows you, God sees you, God loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much that He sent His Son Jesus to live a perfect life, a life that we could never live. And then He was crucified on the cross for our sin, a death that we should have died. And that through the shedding of His blood on the cross, His perfect sinless blood, that they placed Him in the tomb and He rose from the dead. And the Bible teaches us that it is through His sacrifice that for all of those who trust Him as Lord and Savior are forgiven, are hidden, 
The enemy's disarmed. We're no longer under the rule and reign of sin and self. We're under the rule and reign of King Jesus. And so my question is this, is are you saved? Do you have a relationship? We've been talking, this instruction is to those who are in Christ. Are you in Christ? Do you have a relationship with Christ? I pray today that you would begin that relationship. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. Unique circumstances. But Father, I find such great peace to know that regardless of change of plans or plan B, C, D, E, or even F, that God, you're faithful and you're good and you're gracious and you're compassionate and you're caring and you're loving. And that you truly desire the believer's best. That we are complete in you. And so you have resourced us with the power of your Holy Spirit. The power of your word to bring areas of our life that are outside of your design. To bring them under your design. So that we experience peace. And we experience blessing. And we experience order. This honors you. This putting to death of the old and putting on the new. God, show us, convict us, help us. Give us the grace and strength to bring those areas to your leadership and surrender to you. And Father, for anybody here who doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray that even in this moment, they would acknowledge their need for a Savior. They would acknowledge their need to be saved, to be rescued, to be forgiven. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that our sin separates us from a holy God, but God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so I pray that whoever that might be, that in this moment they would acknowledge their sin, acknowledge their need, they would repent, they would have a change of mind about their self and their sin, and they would turn to you and believe that you did die on the cross for their sin and that you did raise from the dead. And that if they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, they will be saved. God, I pray that salvation would come to those who desperately need You. That You would find within our faith family a body of believers that would be bringing their lives under Your design for Your glory for your mission so that God we can honor you we can glorify you but God also we know that with that comes peace because you are the prince of peace so Father we love you and we praise you in Jesus name Amen